This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. You're listening to Slice of Cheese with Jenny Linford on Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Hello, welcome to A Slice of Cheese, the Food FM radio series that celebrates the world of cheese. I'm Jenny Linford, a food writer and cheese enthusiast, the author of Great British Cheeses. Cheese is a delicious and fascinating food, and we're setting out to explore this remarkable food and share the stories of the people who make, sell and love it. This week on A Slice of Cheese, we're going back to basics. Jason Hines of Neil's Yard Dairy talks me through how milk is transformed into cheese. Not only that, we also discuss where cheese is made, why cheese is made, and the rise of Britain's vibrant artisan cheese scene. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com, and specialist food retailers. This week on A Slice of Cheese, I'm very happy to have with me an old friend of the programme, Jason Hines of Neil's Yard Dairy. Hello, Jason. Hello there, Jenny. Jason, this week we're sort of taking a bit of a, a step back and thinking about cheese in sort of broad brushstrokes in a way. And I thought it would actually be really interesting to take our listeners through how cheese is made because sort of what's remarkable when you go into a cheese shop and you look at all the different cheeses on the counter you know cheese shop like Neil's Yard Dairy or Courtyard Dairy the different shapes the sizes and yet they're all made from one ingredient they're all made from milk which seems pretty remarkable to me it still still you know surprises me in a way could you perhaps sort of take us on that journey absolutely yeah um, I mean I've I've been doing this for 30 years now and uh, you know I remain as amazed as you as you as you were just saying there uh, at just the diversity range and scope of, of uh, this incredible ingredient that we have it's milk that can be transformed into so many different versions uh, of cheese with different flavors and textures it's just it's just a it's a wonder but I suppose maybe even before we get to the subject of uh, how cheese is made it's maybe worth just very quickly articulating why cheese was made. <laughs> a lot of people who eat cheese might not think about, I mean, uh, of course, most people know that cheese comes from milk. But, you know, if you go back in time, uh, there were m many, many farms around, small farms around the world that were producing milk that, that um, you know, were obligated to turn their liquid more raw material into something that they could preserve, lest it spoil. And I think, you know, that that is lost on a lot of modern consumers who kind of take take it for granted that, you know, you have milk and you have cheese. But years ago, before refrigeration and before transport links were improved, if you didn't have a way of preserving your liquid milk, it would spoil um, and then you'd have to throw it away. So. So, you know, with that, um, people came up with many, many different iterations of preserving their precious raw material, which was milk. 
Yes, that's a very good point because I think you're right. You know, we we forget in an age of refrigeration that how important how things went off. You know, and they turned and milk, as you say, you know, is really rich sort of protein rich food. You know, okay, protein rich drink that was precious and that sort of yes, and the, you know the sort of folklore about how cheese first started. The theory is, isn't it, that milk was being carried in an animal hide, and that it reacted with with the rennet. You know, the sort of the stomach lining reacted with the enzymes in that to curdle, you know, on a journey, which is sort of quite, exactly. you know, and that makes sense in a, in a hot country taking milk, you know, you think of the cheese yeah. origins in the Middle East. So that's that very basic yeah. story. So let's bring it. Yeah. So I think, thank you for setting that context. I think that's a really good point to make. And then let's talk. So we've got the milk, which is liquid. <laughs> then what happens? What is that sort of basic thing that people do to it then? You know, in terms of the, the steps in the process, the, the, the first thing that's done in a you know in a controlled cheese making environment is to, to to heat the milk and then to add in uh, these days a starter but in, in you know in days of yore you know the milk would would have been soured um, mm-hmm. therefore turning the lactose into lactic acid and the beginning of the cheese making process would begin um, before rennet was added and that liquid miraculously turns into this solid a junket you know a very right. large. Yes. Uh, coagulum um, from which which are the first two stages uh, that every you know every cheese that's made begins that's the you know the one consistent thing to what temperature it's heated up uh, how much starter is added uh, and how much rennet and what type of rennet these things can vary but the result is the same which is that you begin with uh, you know a, a, a coagulum a, a junket uh, like right. a big blancmange I suppose Yes, I mean it's sort of we're trying to get the you know we're trying to get from a liquid to a solid, aren't we? So, so this sort of curdling mm. process. Or Let's just unpick it a little bit because you use the term starter and rennet. What what are their? Mm. What, what do you mean by starter? What do you mean? And what does rennet do in cheese making? The starter culture is an agent which allows you to control the process of acidifying the milk. Uh-huh. Um, and now these days, uh, these are cultures that are available to buy and that you add in. And they come in different forms, different formats, and depending on the cheese that you're making and what kind of result you want, you know, you can add different quantities of that. And you know, this just gives you a control to be able to manage that process in a way right. that's going to help you to 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 come up with the, the the required kind of acidity profile that you want in your milk after you have sour, you know, after you've um, uh, you added the starter culture and begin the souring of the milk. Right. Um, years ago, you know what farmers might have done would be to extract the said stomach, dry it out, and then cut small strips. And in some cheese making processes, like, you know, some Conte producers still do indeed use um, when in the preparation of their rennet, um, some of these fine strips, um, Mm -hmm. which then get mixed up in their in their potion, which they then put into their um, cheese as their into their milk as they're making the cheese. But by and large, most rennets that get used these days, once again, come from, um, you know, they're produced in a lab and when will 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 be, you know, will be available to use in a much more straightforward form than than you know having to cut up little strips, uh, yes. and you know and mix those in. But but basically, it's the enzymes that are contained therein that um, you know that cause the milk. To coagulate, so these so these enzymes are the are the same ones that coagulate the milk in a in a in a controlled environment, which in the case of the cheesemaker is their vat that you would find in the calf's stomach, but the process is essentially the same. 
Yeah, so that's fascinating. So you've got your, so from liquid milk, you've gone to this sort of curd, to to the curd, but you've obviously got curds and whey. You described it as a junket, didn't you? Which I think really captures that, if anyone knows what a junket is nowadays, because it's such an, yeah. it's slightly old fashioned in a way, but it, it comes, you know, that sort of lovely, delicate, wobbly texture. Yeah. It's like, so a, then, yeah, it's like, yes. it's like a, je- it's like a jelly uh, or, a, you know, um, yeah, it's a, it's a very loose, um, uh, you know, coagulum, yes. which, 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 which contains curds. I mean, ultimately what's in there are liquids and solids and the, the function of making cheese is, is ultimately to separate those two, those two things, the, the, the solids that are in the milk and the liquid, the curds, right. the solids, the whey, the liquid. So, okay, brilliant. So we've got our curds. So then does the cheesemaker then start, how, what do they do? They, do they then start to try and get rid of the whey if they're trying to get to their solids? Exactly. So every cheesemaker is faced with this mass of coagulum and then how they treat that, how they cut it, uh, how they heat it, will then have uh, an impact on what kind of cheese is left. And interestingly, you know, that varies. It, that, that's where the remarkable part of cheese making for me is, because if you cut that coagulum very fine, or if you, you know, you ladle it in large pieces, thereby keeping more moisture in, mm-hmm. or if you cut it very fine, thereby releasing a lot more moisture, a lot more whey, you know, the, the solids that you're left with have more or less moisture in. Mm. Finer cut, less moisture in the curd, looser cut or bigger cut, uh, more moisture contained in the curd. When you think about the landscape uh, of the different types of cheeses that are produced and you look at the provenance of those cheeses, you, be- you can begin to understand why certain cheeses were made in certain geographical areas. You know, if you're making a cheese that has got, you know, the capacity to be kept, uh, well, to be made in the summer months when there was a great abundance of milk when the cows are out on the high pasture. Mm -hmm. And then in the winter months when the weather closed in and the, the cows went down into the valleys and you were living higher up in the mountains, you had this, you know, you had this, this source of preserved milk that could stay with you because you kept... Uh, you know, you 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 you've been able to keep these cheeses that you've made in the summer, yeah. In in a cold area, cool. like a, like yes. a cl- in a in a cave or yeah. you know in a in a grotto somewhere, yeah. Um, uh, and it had been able to be kept through the summer months, maybe when it was warmer, because it was still in a cool environment, and you would be able to have access to that, say in the depths of winter. Uh, when a lot of the, you know, when a lot of the nutrition that, that you know, that, that, that you would also, that you find in cheese, that you would find in milk would be available to you to eat because yeah. you'd, pre- you'd preserve this, you'd preserve this milk in form of a cheese um, and it had not spoilt and there it was for you to eat in December or January or February or whenever. Yeah, I mean, that is so interesting, isn't it? Because we've talked about, the, you know, the variety of cheeses and then it's really interesting to sort of think, you know, why, you know, why? Why these different ways? And, and often they're very practical reasons to do with, you know, access to a market. Perhaps, you know, it might even be linked with, to transport. You know, perhaps if, you, you know, if you're making, if you've got a, a big town near you and you've got a market, you can take your little fresh French goat's cheese and sell it at the market. But if you're stuck up a mountain, that's probably not quite such an option. So keep it and save it for the winter months, which is a jolly good idea. Exactly. So, so you were saying, so we could go back to that curds and whey stage. So you were, it was so fascinating. So you were saying that the, the way, the level, the amount of whey that's taken out of the curd is a real factor in, in shaping the cheese. So, so would it, is it naive to think then if I've got a soft cheese, has it had more, more moisture 
left in it is that you know is the curd handled gently is that how it goes exactly so so um you know if you're if you're making a i don't know a, a relatively fresh or fresh goat's milk cheese um well we were talking about being in provence so here we are in provence uh, it's very hot uh you know your cheese that when when the goat's season is in full swing which is in the summer months when it's hot outside you know you probably once the cheese has been made you probably only got a week or two um, from the time that it's made before it needs to be eaten without without you know before it spoils well, mm. so 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 really the the way that the curd is handled is probably this coagulum that we talked about maybe being in a vat if you're making a larger cheese might be uh, in a small bucket you might have several you know several buckets depending on how much milk you've got from that from that coagulum that sits in that uh, vessel in that bucket or whatever you would probably ladle that with a you know with a large with a ladle or a large spoon or something into chunks i suppose um, right which which would be chunks of curd which uh -huh. obviously have a lot more moisture in them which you would ladle into a form you know in the case of a you know valence a pyramid shape or a or a or a you know, or a, or a roll, you know, like a, like a St. Moore or a ragstone, but in, into a form which would give the shape of the cheese uh, and it would be ladle into, so into those forms, gently, thereby preserving uh, as much of the curd to be intact, for the curd to remain as intact as possible. Because every right. time, you know, if you handle curd roughly, then you break it up because it's a very fragile thing. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, if it breaks up, every time it breaks up, it loses moisture. So you really want to keep moisture in the curd that's going in some of these fresher cheeses because that's the idea. The whole point of them right. is that they, they're they fresh and they've got moisture in them. Whereas, uh, and, and you're not concerned with them spoiling because you're going to be eating them very quickly. Um, so... Uh, but it, with you know with with the hard cheese such as the Conte or the or the Gruyere or the cheddar, the idea is that that coagulum is cut really quite fine using knives, and every incision that's made in that curd is going to produce is going to is going to have the effect of releasing moisture. Right. And you know with a Conte or a Gruyere, um, the the pieces of curd that you're left with by the time the cutting procedure is finished or, or even a parmesan to take one of the most extreme examples the pieces of curd mm -hmm. that you're left with are the size of a pea so cut very wow. very 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 fine indeed thereby you yeah. know um, re releasing probably more moisture from that coagulum than just about any other of the cheese making processes out there but therefore also giving that cheese its capacity to be able to be matured for you know really upwards of 24 months um, yep. And, you know, without taking that amount of moisture out, you wouldn't be able to, 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 uh, to, to achieve that kind of length of maturing on the cheese. Yes, because actually moisture is one of the things that encourages bacterial growth, which can be very bad for food. So, so it's very interesting. In fact, yeah. you know, we're talking about preserving food. So presumably the, this is when salt, which is a very important ingredient in cheese, isn't it? Salt plays yeah. a massive part in preserving the curd. At this stage, when you've got your curd, you've taken out your curd from the whey. Is this when you add the salt in? Depends on the cheese and, uh, you know, different uh, countries, to, you know, different cheese technologies add the salt at, at, at different stages. So at the point that the salt is added, say, in the cheddar process, uh, will be when the whey has been separated from the curds. Curds have been, in this case, milled. And so they're really, they're really, they're, 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 you know, you've got, you've got quite, you know, quite small pieces of fairly roughly cut curd in a traditional cheddar and 
these are all in the cooling tray into in a, in a, in a big uh, you know in a in a big sort of well in a shallow vat type space um, into which the salt is added and then mixed in before the curds with their salt then get put into a form to be pressed oh, okay. um, you know once the cheese right. has, once the cheese has been made so so in this yeah. case the salt is added to the curds before the, before the cheese is formed other cheeses will have salt added to the outside once the cheese has been formed in other words once mm. the curds have gone into its form possibly have been yeah. pressed and then salt is added to the outside. In some cases, that could be dry salt. In some cases, it could be a brine. And in some cases, yeah. it could be a combination of both. Uh, and then, of course, you also have, uh, so I mean, again, a cheese like a, you know, a Gruyere or a Conte, for example, uh, you know, commonly that they will have, well, certainly with Conte, will have, it will be dry salted in the very early days when the cheese is barely out of the out of the mold and that dry salt will be absorbed into the into the into oh. the very damp outer skin of the cheese but then as you know as the the early days of the maturing of the cheese continue then then you know it will be brine w- solution will be you know rubbed around the whole of the outside of the cheese and when you get to some of the washed softer washed rind types of cheese again um very often there will be a a, a washing of the outside of the rind of the cheese, uh, you know, with a salt water solution to encourage the right kind of mold that, that that you're looking for in that type of cheese. So, so yes, there are different ways that salt is, uh, you know, different kinds of interventions with salt depending on the cheese, yeah. on the cheese type that's being produced. Can you give us a sense of what are some of the things that cheesemakers do to affect the texture of their cheeses, Jason? Again, is it linked to to trying to get rid of moisture? So some of those, you know, you get some cheese are very dense, you know, they're sort of, I'm trying to think what the word is, you know, dense and firm and they, and supple. What are some of the things that would have happened in order to make those textures? Obviously, there are various techniques and there are um, a whole, you know, again, the, the, the sort of the magic of cheese is that you have this huge range of both flavours and textures and people focus a lot more on flavour because, you know, maybe it has, it's more, it has more impact, but there's just as much range in I think in, in terms of textures, and I think yes. it's something that I get, I get point. very exci- I get very excited yeah. about because there are you yeah. know in the consum- in the consumption of food there really are two elements that that you know that you um, can engage with how it tastes and and and, mm. and its mouthfeel how it feels yeah. Um, yeah you know and we 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 really we we don't underscore enough I don't think um, the importance of texture but certainly in you know in the world of cheese. Uh, take for example a cheese like a Gouda, which has got you know this kind of dense but creamy texture with a very smooth, cre- you know, very smooth creamy mouthfeel. You know, one of the ways that you know one of the techniques that's uh, native to to Goudas in particular is the the removal of a certain amount of whey. You know, at the process when you've cut the curds and the curds and the whey are all together in your vat, uh, that you might you might remove a percentage of the way that's in there and replace it with hot oh. water and that you know that technique there is one of the techniques that you know helps to give that cheese its particular texture but equally you know there there are so there's the there's the knowns then there's the other beautiful you know frustrating but wondrous thing about cheese is that <laughs> uh, there, there can be so many other reasons that we don't really understand why textures can change we're very fortunate at in in our business to to visit lots of cheesemakers very frequently 
uh, and taste a whole flight of cheeses that are made, you know, within, say, a month of production. And, you know, what you're looking at is, you know, maybe 30 days worth or thereabouts of cheese made in a, in a, in a concentrated period, uh, made with the same milk uh, from the same herd of cows, often made by the same individual, same cheesemaker, using the, uh, the same ingredients. And yet, you know, you can often have textures that can vary quite a lot, you know, with, with say, with the cheddars that we work with. Um, that's a cheese that maybe we, uh, you know, we visit several cheddar makers uh, that we work with where we have this um, regular monthly experience grading cheeses. And despite the fact that on paper, everything is the same, within a month, sometimes you can range, you can get cheeses that range from having drier, more crumbly textures to really quite soft, smooth and creamy textures. Mm. And so quite, you know, trying to understand why that is tends to take up, (laughs) tends to take up a little bit of the discussion when we do those gradings. What was it about that? You know, was it to do with what temperature the milk was heated to? Uh, You know, because you're then talking about points of degrees that can make a difference. Mm. Um, You know, how, how, how finely was the curd cut? You know, when it was milled, how quickly was all the curd that was then milled? You know, did they get did did the did the cheesemaker get through? Uh, uh, you know, all the sheets of of cheddar curd that are in the vat at the right speed because you know all the time uh, the blocks of curd are hardening uh, oh. before you go to the mill. So you know, if yeah. it took you forty five minutes to mill all of that curd instead of thirty five minutes, just yeah. you know. That that might have an impact on on you know on how hard the curd was that goes into the mold, which could have then a resultant effect on 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 how firm or creamy that cheese might ultimately be. So you know, so there's as I say, there's there is there are knowns, there are things that are part of the recipe which you know lead you towards handling the curd in a particular way, which will give you you know uh, the the you know the the the, the result that you hope to get in terms of texture but then uh you know the the finer points and the vagaries uh, and that you know that exist within within cheese making but they're really fine they're fine points can actually have uh disproportionately large effects in terms of change and it's why we you know it's why we love working with it so much yeah. because because it's every you know almost it's like every day is a different season i was going to say it's that endless fascination isn't it of why mm. i think this is what you know for the cheese maker and for people like you jason who you know cheesemongers who sell it and sort of are fast you know it's just not it's not a simple you know it's not oh recipe do this bing out it comes it's like no exactly it's much more complex than that isn't it, it? is and i yeah. think and that's really something i think as a you know as someone who, who enjoys cheese and buys it you know it's really well worth pausing just sort of reflecting on the the hard work and the, the skill that's gone into what you're enjoying you know because it's not an automatic when you're buying a farmhouse cheese um there's just a hell of a lot of sort of care and attention that's gone into making it and i and i and i think it had you know uh, one of the 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 skills of a cheese maker that is really thinking about what it is they want they they, they, what what outcome is it that they're looking for Mm. in the cheese is you know an analysis of the raw material they're working before they actually begin the process because the milk is changing all the time you know there are constituents that you can look at before you start working on your cheese in terms of uh, fat content moisture content uh, and these things can change on a daily basis it's uh, you know i marvel at cheesemakers that are able to make something with an inherently variable product 
milk that can ver- can often vary from one day to the next mm-hmm. and, and how they can achieve something consistent but they achieve that by adjusting uh you know yes. the, the uh, their understanding yeah. of what the raw material how the yeah. raw material is and yeah. then and then adjusting everything around that as they produce it to try and get something that's consistent th- which is a challenge talk- yes and when you talk about consistency what I, in cheese i was thinking of it was colston bassett stilton that came to mind actually as a cheese that that i'm really fond of and, and often buy and eat and um, yeah i'm struck you know by how consistent it is actually you know it doesn't yeah. It seems to be, it has its parameters, you know. So, so it's it's maker, you know, Billy, who's got decades of experience. He yeah, he must be an example of that of someone who literally knows, you know, he's got his target, yes, and he knows how to get there in a way, doesn't he? So he does, you know, he's an ex- he's an excellent example of someone who's at the, the the controls of the vehicle and you know knows how to man- manipulate manipulate those controls to to try to uh, you know reach reach the the intended destination but i think it, you know that all of that sounds very simple it really is very very <laughs> difficult i'm a huge fan of peter's yard's crackers and they go beautifully with cheese all peter's yard's crackers are made in small batches using quality natural ingredients and their sourdough starter slowly fermented for 16 hours for award-winning flavour and crunch. Visit petersyard.com forward slash shop, enter the code SLICEOFCHEESE at the checkout to receive 25% off your first order. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Morrison's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. So presumably the making of cheese is very much linked then to to having live to having access to pasture that that suits your you know whatever livestock it is that you're farming whether it's cows or goats or sheep. So mm. so there's something very fundamental isn't it about where cheese is made. Let's talk about that then. Yeah, we touched briefly on the mountainous areas such as the Alps or the Jura where you know the, the landscape there is very suited to keeping cows as you know amazingly rich pastures up in the mountains and you know the cows can can graze freely uh, and have this incredible uh, food source which mm-hmm. produces amazingly complex milk you know the the, 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 the you know the, the, the cows are at one with nature with a mate with a, with amazing inputs to produce great milk that produces great cheese that can be stored in an environment where it will not spoil so that's you know that's that's a very sort of romantic you know vision of of, of farming and cheese making and uh, and maturing but if you you know zoom into i don't know the uk landscape mm-hmm. um and where dairy farming happens and why it happens where it happens uh, and where and why we produce the cheeses that we produce and where we produce them you know it's very interesting looking at at the uk because actually um most of the cheeses, most of the dairy industry, most of the dairy farms, and therefore where much of the cheese is produced has its has it you know has as its source the west side of, of oh. the country. So if you were to draw a line, a sort of vertical line through the United Kingdom, pretty much halfway halfway across, uh, you will see that a large percentage of all the Dairy farms and cheese producers are to the west side of that line, whether that's in you know Cornwall and Devon, up through Somerset, Wales, Lancashire, Cheshire, uh, and Western Scotland. That's where mm. that's where the rainfall is that's coming off the right. prevailing weather systems that come from the Atlantic. Uh, yeah. With rain, with rain comes comes you know grass, uh, more yeah. grass, 
Um, yeah. And and with that comes, you know, the inputs required for sustaining a dairy business um, or a dairy farm, I should say. Mm. So it's no wonder that, uh, you know, if you look at the UK, that the, the, the farms that we buy from are nearly all on the west side, on the left left side of that line, as it were. There are a few farms that are to the east. Yeah, like um, Fen Farm. Like, Fen, like yes. Fen Farm. Um, like, you know, um, the uh, Lincolnshire Poacher is a yeah. great cheese that's to the east. Um, you know, historically, the, the landscape for British cheese all is very sort of tilted towards the western part mm. of, of the country. That's fascinating, isn't it? I love that. Something that always strikes me is how much hard work cheesemaking is. So for farmers, it presumably it was a way of adding value to their milk. To the, you know, Instead of their milk going off, they could turn it into cheese, which would keep a bit longer, that could be taken to market. So that's an incentive, obviously, to go to this, you know, this very laborious process of making cheese. So I was thinking partly of industrialisation, which is something we should talk about, but also the rise of the railways, where suddenly dairies can send milk into cities. Does that yeah. de- is that an incentive for farmers not to make cheese because they can just sell it as milk, which is presumably simpler for them? De- definitely, you know, one of the biggest one of the uh, the biggest factors in in causing small farms to move away from transforming their um, their liquid milk into cheese was the advent of the railways, and so um, you know, as we move through into the ni- you know deeper into the nineteenth century, and you know the railway infrastructure around the country became more sophisticated. So with that, um, you know, farms were able to move their milk to the local train station and ship it to the local town. Mm. Um, because of course, prior to that, uh, yeah, not only would the milk have spoiled if it wasn't transformed into a cheese, but also it's a liquid. You know, a cheese is much more thinking practically. The transportability yeah. of a of a of a, of a of hard a round yes. of a of a dry round yeah. Ver, yeah. versus a moving liquid, yeah. uh, you know, presents just logistical problems that are yeah. you know that are that you know that are pertinent. Because what I mean, when you read a history of British cheese making, you know, the the role of the two world wars. It, it seems very detrimental, you know, to farmers' cheese making. Um, you know, partly because people are people who with knowledge are going away and they've been killed. This this labour and then. You know, rationing is blamed a lot, actually, for us losing a lot of our of our sort of British food heritage. Actually, that's you know, right. Rationing, yeah, the need, well, you, you know, and that, yeah. You you also, yeah, that those are all the important factors. And then you have also uh, in between the First and Second World War, uh, you start to see a lot more sort of mechanisation of cheese production, factories making cheese. You know, taking their lead from you know the Antipodes, uh, North America, you know, USA and Canada. Mm-hmm. Who were really much further advanced in in the in the factory production of cheddar in particular, and actually importing into the UK cheddar that was cheaper than what was being made locally because it was made wow. on such a large scale. So yeah. it's only in, it's only and you know the, they were quite a few years ahead of us in those yeah. areas, those parts yeah. of the world. And it wasn't until really until we get in you know in between the two wars when when we start to see. Uh, a lot more uh, large-scale production of cheese in this country, and then also uh, you're right to say that you know a lot of knowledge would have been lost in you know both wars, but also during the war, the Second World War, and 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 even after it, just because because of the food shortage and people people just didn't have the means, and and also for for a need to kind of really preserve this 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 um, precious commodity which was milk. Yeah. Um, a lot of our a, a lot of the sort of br- the ver- uh, you know. Some of the variety that existed 
in the British cheese landscape was lost because, you know, there was a government initiative to um, have producers that were making sort of fresher, more fragile, um, shorter shelf life cheeses to be converted into making what was called national cheese. So, you know, which was a kind of Dunlop style, a sort of slightly younger cheddar style cheese. Um, So, you know, Stilton producers, for example, for mm-hmm. a period, were making that ste- that type of cheese. Wow. They weren't making Stilton. Yeah. And the reason um, for that would have been that you would have kept for longer. So it was, it would have, of, it, you know, exactly. it was like let's not, you know, let's not risk having a perishable cheese. Let's have exactly. a cheese that will keep. So it goes back to that whole preservation thing we've been talking yeah, about. Yeah, we need we need yeah. to feed we need to feed the nation. We need to feed yeah. the nation. We need to not be wasteful. Yes. Uh, uh, and and so and but what happened is you know a lot of those you know recipes were not picked up again necessarily. You know, there was a kind of gearing towards more of a sort of more, e- you know, easy, easy, more easily preserved, larger type of cheese that maybe they wouldn't have made in the different regions of England, you know, or the, or the UK previously, that when there's no longer that requirement to make inverted commas, national cheese, that they didn't necessarily go back to the cheese that they or their forebears yeah. were making before. And so yeah. with that, there's a knowledge base that was eroded too. Yeah, so interesting. One of the reasons I wanted you on this programme, Jason, is that as someone who's worked at Niels Yard Dairy for so long and, you know, it's very, you've got a very interesting insight, I think, into what's happened to British cheese in the last sort of 20, 30 years. Um, something I've seen in my own time as a food writer is I've seen this sort of rise of craft cheese making, if you want to use that term, which, you know, like a chocolate term or farmhouse mm. cheese making. Tell me about that. We didn't really start to see supermarkets until after the second world war mm-hmm. um, and i think when they came in uh, they were very you know the government was very keen to support them because they 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 really helped people um to be able to buy food more affordably and yeah. that was a great thing and it was absolutely necessary as absolutely necessary at the time mm-hmm. um and so you know supermarkets clearly uh, fundamentally important have a very very important part in in had a very important part to play then and have a very important part to play now and so one of the things that i think really that's really encouraging now is that we're starting to see more and more of these kind of specialists or champions uh of of of, of specialist food whether they be cheesemongers you know there's more cheese shops popping up you know uh, I yeah. think there's specialist butchers are starting to pop up again when yes. they'd almost been written off, um, off, you know, disappeared from the high street. Uh, even greengrocers are starting to reappear. And so you're starting to see these shoots, posit- you know, new shoots um, where there's an individual who's connected with the food that they're selling, knows the source, knows the producer, knows how to handle it, um, you know, knows the cuts, knows which cuts will go of meat will go best with which dish. You know, that's, so we're starting to see that again. And I'm, I'm really, really, you know, I'm really, really encouraged by that. And I also am encouraged that, you know, um, looking at um, what the supermarkets were selling in terms of cheese and British cheese in particular, when, you know, when I started selling cheese in the early 90s, you know, British cheese was absent from supermarket shelves other than in sort of commodity block fashion. And nearly all of it would have been, a, diff- a, a you know, a cheddar with a different number on it. Yeah. And that would that would have been it. But now, you know, um, supermarkets are also much more engaged with specialist quality food and cheese in particular. So I'm, I'm really encouraged by that. I think it's a great thing. It's a very holistic food system because 
we're buying the cheese, we're selecting it so shortly after we're working with the, 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 the farmer or the cheesemaker, you know, once the cheese has been made, we're bringing that cheese into our business, we're introducing it to our customers, we're listening to that, we're tasting mm. it with them, we're listening to their feedback, and then we're bringing that feedback back to back. the producer. <laughs> yes. and, and, and so the whole thing, uh, that's... So it's a cycle, isn't it? It's, a, yes. it's very, very yeah. much so. So cheese making, as we've sort of made clear, I think, is a lot of work and a lot of care and yet and yet you're working with you know with this with a growing band really of cheesemakers in Britain you know there are new cheesemakers come along all the time aren't they and not just you obviously there are, lot, there are many other cheesemongers in Britain who are you know who are showcasing local cheeses whether in Wales or in Scotland or in and so what is it what are some of the drivers that are setting the triggers that make people want to go to this effort, you know, because it is, what, what do you see when you talk to cheesemakers, Jason? Well, I, I suppose um, one of the first things to, to say is that um, what's very exciting about this, net, for me anyway, this, the phase that we're in and the phase that we're going into is that uh, compared to when I started, when I began in the early 90s, you know, the idea that you might, as a young person starting a career, go consider a career either as a cheesemaker or as a cheesemonger, would be utterly risible. You know, just you wouldn't even have thought about it. It wouldn't be yeah. a consideration. And, and, yeah, and very eccentric it, thing to do, wasn't it? Yes. Just yeah. bizarre. Oh. But now uh, the industry has, has grown up and has developed to the extent that, you know, there are people, lots of them young, who are absolutely, absolutely you know, heading in a path or, or beginning businesses or beginning, beginning careers as either cheesemongers or cheesemakers. Mm. Um, and I know that they will be doing that. You know, a lot of those people that are setting out now will be doing them and th still doing those in doing that, uh, you know, still be in those careers yeah. in 30 years time. So it's a viable and, way to make a living then to be yeah. making cheese, make well, a good cheese, sell good cheese. This is well, the, you know, and, the, yeah. and that's it. The, 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 you know, you hit, you hit the nail on the head with the word viability. Um, yes, it has a premium. Um, it's more expensive than the stuff. It's, it's sort of commodity equivalent. But um, there, you know, the fact that I think that in the in our industry here in the UK, we have we have a, 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 a you know a bigger demand than there is supply. So wow. that's driving people towards this industry to say, "Wow, that's exciting! I, I could make cheese. Uh, I'm encouraged to do so because there seems to be a market there for you know amongst the consumers to want to buy something that tastes good." that has this premium. I mean, um, yes, I think, you know, if I think of talking to Johnny Crickmore, Fen Farm Dairy, who was, you know, he was from a family of dairy farmers, but yeah. but but dairy, selling milk just wasn't economically viable. You know, so he, they were in a very depressed, I think, you know, depressed in every way state. And yeah. he looked around to see what he could do. And he came up with, oh, you know, well, let me give this cheese making, you know, a, thing ago and he, yeah. he's making you know this fantastic cheese baron by god yeah you know so much demand for it um yeah and he's just and it's that's really sort of rewarding you know that trajectory of of someone turning to something and then making this and it's a wonderful addition to the british canon of cheeses to have you know in effect a british brie made in suffolk by someone who went to huge amount of trouble and got in you know his whole montbeniard cow especially for their milk Absolutely. and learnt and to make a very difficult to make cheese and he's making it wonderfully yeah that's that's that sort of story must just make you very, I don't know, excited, Jason, and sort of, I don't know, it must be very rewarding for you to, well, it, to see it. Definitely. I mean, I remember sitting around the table at uh, the Special Cheesemakers Association conference with us, where Johnny, I met Johnny and Dulce for the first time, and, and this was just, you know, they were thinking about making a cheese, and we talked about what type of cheese, 
and saying to him, well, um, you know, the only British non-British cheese that we sell in our business is is a is a breed of mo because we can't find the quality of that style of cheese um, in the UK, but we must have that style of cheese because there really is uh, a requirement for it in a cheese shop. Um, mm. So if you make one, if you make a cheese of that of that style and of that quality, then then we'll be able to sell a goodly amount of it. Um, and so you know, ten years on, they've been in business over ten years now. It's it's amazing to see the incredible work that they do and um you know we will actually um we'll be we'll be traveling as a business there's something called the salon de fromage this weekend in paris a very important sort of trade ah, show and we, we have taken johnny's cheese johnny wow. and Darcy's cheese to the salon de fromage <laughs> yeah introduced it to a french consuming public and in fact we have exported it we do have some customers in france for the baron by god uh, and, it's, it's, it? and it's very well it's very well regarded because it's an excellent yeah. cheese so yeah. it's just yes it's very rewarding and very you know we should be proud of the industry which is producing you know young dynamic couples like johnny and dulcie who are you know motivated to make something that can taste as good as it can taste and you know i i, I see more opportunities in the future for more cheeses not just you know versions of continental styles but i think there's only one raw milk cheshire still being made wouldn't it be great if someone else was going to start making a raw milk cheshire so their number would go from one to two so that cheese is less endangered Um, that that would be amazing and i think that will happen and i think to take the story right back to where we started which is on the subject of milk uh you know which is where it all begins Mm um i think that um what we what we will see in the future what we will see in the next generation the next 10 20 30 years uh, i hope is that the consumer's interest and and uh thirst hunger i should say um for uh, delicious cheese will be driving more and more people to make cheese but the, the the key question is where do they where do they get their raw materials from where do they get their milk from because a lot of them don't necessarily have the 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 expertise or the or the or the finance to be yeah. able to go and buy a farm sure. nor the expertise to run a dairy farm um, but there are lots of small dairy farms out there still in the UK they are diminishing in number with every year that passes because mm-hmm. you know um, uh, running running up just as you were saying with you know Johnny and yeah. Darcy 10 years ago making a, a, a dairy a very small dairy operations stack up financially with the low price that historically has been paid for for milk or the price very high at the moment Mm. but um you can make great cheese but it's very hard to make great cheese without great milk and so you know in this next generation you know part of our work and and part of the work will be to try to understand where the good milk is and uh, look to inspire and put together collaboration between the farmers who are still producing great milk, you know, the entrepreneurs who are interested in making a cheese from their milk and putting them together on the farm. And certainly, you know, in, in the village that I live in, there's a good example of that where, you know, David Jowett, who's mm-hmm. just only just recently turned 30, but making cheese for the last 10 years or so, is collaborating with a farm that's been, that has been a dairy farm for a couple of generations. The milk's incredible, but honestly, without david's arrival the farm will tell you that the chances are they wouldn't be in dairying anymore gosh because david gives them a premium yeah for their milk because he needs great milk to make great cheese um, and so i think uh, what i hope in the future you know we have this conversation 10 years time we we will have we will we will see a, also a growing number of small dairy farms mm. inspired to make great milk and um, whether that's because they've you know looked at their 
farming systems, looked at, you know, um, uh, slightly more diverse, you know, whether that's introducing herbal lays uh, or, a, you know, more diverse pastures, which will create more complex milk to produce the kind of milks that's going to make that's going to make more interesting cheese. So hopefully, you know, this um, cheese industry can hopefully pull up and bring these small dairy farms with them so that these, yeah. the, this, this supply of great milk is preserved and, and doesn't disappear. Um, you know, there is a danger that while there is a good demand for great cheese now and there will be in the future, I think, if we don't, if we don't look out for the milk yeah. sources and good preserve point. them and find a way to, you know, put them together with the people that will add the value Yes. to that milk, um, then, you know, then the work will be compromised. So we'll really know that that, that things are looking bright when we see, uh, uh, you know, um, young, you know, well, it doesn't have to be young, but people starting, out, yes. starting yeah. out a career in cheese making, yeah. inspired to make more of the kind of native cheeses to the UK. And I think one of the things about which always strikes me about the British food scene is there's a lot of willingness to be innovative and fresh and energetic. Brilliant. Well, listen, Jason, I can't think of a better person to have had that conversation with. Thank you so much for your time. That You're was very welcome. great. All right, take care, Jason. Thank okay. You. Yeah. Speak soon. Cheers. Bye. Bye. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Thank you so much for listening to a slice of cheese. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, it would be lovely if you could rate us on wherever you've found this podcast. It will make such a difference to us. So I hope you'll enjoy us again. Thank you very much.